As you can see, there's actually Kids Connect today, even though it's a third Sunday. That's because last week when we were at Fifth Street, we didn't know that we were going to send the kids out, and so we scheduled this today. So it's kind of a, a bonus Kids Connect this month. The real question that we've got to answer before we start is, even though the kids are out there, do you guys want to hear the kids' sermon that I kind of mistakenly prepared because I forgot about it? Yes? All right, kids. Where are all the kids at? Everybody raise your hands. Okay. Good job. So I want to start by asking you what you think about politicians. <laughs> are they good or are they bad? And we're not, we're not talking about specific politicians. We're just generally politicians. Are they good or are they bad? What do you think? Good. Thank you, Charles. Charles says good. Does everybody agree with Charles? They're good. No. No, you guys don't. So you think that they're good and bad is what you're telling me, right? Just bad? Just bad. There, there's like no good whatsoever in any of them? Nope. That's, that's maybe a, a little pessimistic. Uh, well, all right. So regardless of, of whether you think they're mostly good or mostly bad, I think we can all at least agree that there aren't any that are perfect. Right? Caleb agrees. There are, there are no perfect leaders uh, anywhere in this world. Right? Yes, we, we should know that and believe that because we know that if we were in a position of leadership or a position of power, that we would absolutely, without a doubt, be imperfect in it just like we're imperfect in our current positions, whatever they are. Uh, the point of that is because today what we're talking about in our, in our passage is God's solution to the current problem that Israel had been facing in the book of Isaiah. Where, where we've been so far in Isaiah is we've been going through these chapters where Isaiah is kind of like summed up what's been happening in, in Judah. And so their crisis that they're in the midst of is that they have bad leaders over them. They have people who, who really don't have any good in them at all, like Zach thinks about our politicians. These are these really bad leaders. They're, they're leading the nation astray. They're telling the religious, leader, religious leaders within the nation not to lead the people religiously. They say, you know, prophesy to us false prophecies. Don't tell us what God says. Don't talk to us about him anymore. They're, they're just leading the nation astray. And because of that, judgment is going to come. And so we've kind of turned this corner in the book of Isaiah, away from him saying, hey, you need to repent because judgment is going to come, to him saying, hey, judgment's going to come, you really, really need to repent now. Uh, and this is the, the crisis that they're in the midst of, and so their solution came in the last two chapters that we covered in the book of Isaiah. The, the foolish leaders, they said, hey, all right, judgment's coming, so what are we going to do? Well, let's go down to Egypt. Even though Isaiah has said again and again and again and again and again, don't go down to Egypt, they're not going to help you. And he spent two more chapters to tell them the same thing that he had just been telling them for about ten chapters. Don't go down to Egypt. What do they do? They go down to Egypt. So that's their plan. That's their solution. And it fails miserably. And so in the two chapters that we're going to look at today, Isaiah is going to come back and he's going to say, okay, this is what God is going to do. This is how God is going to solve the current problem that you're in because, you know, a really bad problem already existed and then you made things worse by going down to Egypt. And so in our passage today, his solution is twofold. This is how God is going to intervene to, to fix them and fix what's going on. The first part of it is uh, he himself is going to be their king. He's going to be the perfect leader that they've always needed. That's the first part, God as king. The second part is them, the people, recognizing that. Because the reality is, right, God has always been their king. God has always been our king. He, he made this world. He made everything in it. He made us. He owns us. He owns everything. So he, he's already the king. So the second part is really what matters. It's them recognizing, hey, 
God's the ruler we need. He's the king we need. We don't need to trust in these foolish people that are leading us astray. And so that's what these two chapters are about. And before we, we read it, we're going to start by reading chapter 32, and then we're going to come back later and read 33. But before we get there, I want to, I want to throw up an outline that shows kind of where we're going. And the reason why this matters is because in these chapters, it kind of feels at times like Isaiah's all over the place. He's talking about this thing, and he's talking about that thing, but really there's this common thread weaving throughout the whole passage of of God's kingship and the people recognizing him as king. So the first chapter we're going to read, he starts the first eight verses just talking about what good government is. Specifically, a government has God as its king and what its results are. So he's going to say this is what it looks like, this is what the king looks like, and this is how it's going to affect the people. In the second part of 32, he's going to come back and say, well, well, how do we get this ideal government from where we are right now? And then in chapter 33, he's going to tell them what's coming next. The beginning, he's going to kind of summarize it, and then he's going to unpack that in detail in the rest of the chapter. And so he's talking all along about this idea of God's kingdom coming and the effect that it's going to have on the people. And so we're going to read Isaiah chapter 32 first. He says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. His plans are wicked schemes, to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest falls, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And that in it you tell us more about who you are and who we are in light of it. That from from cover to cover, it tells the story of a God who reigns over his people and who reigns righteously and justly and kindly and graciously. God, I pray that you would help us as your creation and as those who have trusted in the name of your Son to to recognize in a new way today that you are king over us. And that your kingdom wouldn't just be some abstract or far-off idea. But that we would recognize that it's, it's through your reign over this world and your reign in this world that you are going to set everything right in it, including us. 
I pray that through this passage in Isaiah that you would stir our affections and our, and our appreciation for what Christ has done on our behalf on the cross. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So again, in these, in these first eight verses, what Isaiah is doing is he's just throwing out this kind of general idea of God's kingdom, this, this good government over the people as the solution to their problems and what its effects will be. So in the first kind of couple of verses, he talks about this king. This king will reign in righteousness. His, his princes will rule in justice. So, so both the, the main leader and the ones who lead under them are going to be right and they're going to be just. And, uh, you know, if, that kind of seems obvious to us. Like, of course, you would want your rulers to be this way. But you have to remember where they're at. They're in the midst of leaders who do the very opposite, who oppress the poor, oppress the needy, who, who celebrate themselves and put themselves in positions of power and authority without caring about those underneath them. So this is a, a big change from what they're used to. And it's a big change from what we're used to. A king who is righteous and, and those under him who rule in justice. He says that each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. They're going to be leaders who provide a place of safety and security and flourishing for their people. Um, And again, that's important because of what they're currently facing. They're currently facing a nation that's about to come attack them. And so having a leader who's going to protect you from all of that is a leader that you want to have in this situation. Their leaders got them into the situation. He says... Then in verse, verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. What he's doing here is he's referring back to what the other leaders said to the prophets and the seers in, in chapter uh, 30 of the book of Isaiah. They, they told the leaders, they said, hey, seers, don't, don't see. Don't, don't give us God's vision for our country. They said to the prophets, don't, don't prophesy. Tell us no more about the Holy One of Israel. They're telling those who are supposed to lead them religiously not to do so. Instead, they just want to do whatever they want without any kind of confrontation from God. But God tells us about this king and his rulers that they're going to cause these people to use their gifts and function in their God-given role for the betterment of this government, for the betterment of this kingdom. Um, Verse 4, The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. It's not just the strengths that are going to be used for God's glory in this kingdom, even the weaknesses are. Even those who, who couldn't speak or couldn't understand are going to understand the word of the Lord and they're going to be able to speak it distinctly to all the people for the betterment of this kingdom. Verses 5 through 8 deal with the negative results. The positive results are that you know, there's going to be righteousness and justice and good things and people are going to use their God-given gifts and weaknesses for the role that God has for them. But the rest of this kind of introduction to good government is that for those who weren't doing right, uh, they're going to be in trouble. The fool is not going to be called noble anymore. Those who are leading and have honor, uh, they're going to be found out. Instead, they're going to be recognized as fools. Why? Because they speak folly. Their heart is busy with iniquity. They practice ungodliness. They utter error concerning the Lord, and they deprive the thirsty of drink. They, they, they take good things from people that need them and want them and keep them for themselves and misuse them. Uh, as for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor. And even when the plea of the needy is right, they're oppressing these people. And in this new kingdom, they are going to pay for it. They're not going to get away with it any longer. Verse 8, but he who is noble plans noble things and on noble things he stands. The ones who are even painted as bad people by these wicked rulers are going to be shown to be right in the end. This is this good government coming. They're going to rule with righteousness and justice. It's going to be a place where you want to be. Uh, and so now he's going to talk, right? Because if, if, if you were in Judah right now, Assyria is coming. And then you hear Isaiah make this announcement about this wonderful king and this wonderful kingdom where there's going to be shelter and safety and security and everything's going to be the way it's supposed to be and all those foolish leaders that have got you in this mess are going to be gone. You're going to want to know, how do we get there? Right? How do we get from this situation that we're in to this ideal government? Right? Sure, that sounds nice, Isaiah. But let's be realistic. So what he's going to do in the rest of 32 is tell them how they're going to get there. And it's probably not the answer that they want. Because he tells them two things. The first is judgment. 
In order to get from here to there, we've got to go through judgment. But the second thing that he tells them is good news. The good news is that salvation comes after that. So the judgment comes in verses 9 through 14. All this stuff that we read about these, these women, these complacent women, these women who are at ease, these women who, who need to hear what Isaiah is saying and, and repent and respond. This is, he's probably talking about the, the family of the bad leaders. He did that earlier in the book of Isaiah um, when he kind of announced judgment against the leaders and he announced judgment against their families. And there he specifically talked about how the women kind of dressed in all these ornate outfits and stuff. And the reason why he did that is because they were oppressing the poor so that they could be wealthy themselves, so that they could look nice and dress nice and have the things they wanted. Um, And here, again, he's kind of bringing up that same group, wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, of those who are in power, who are kind of profiting from the oppression of the poor and needy. He's saying, like, "You're, you're complacent, you're at ease, but you shouldn't be. He tells him in verse 10, In little more than a year, you will shudder. You complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. He's telling them the judgment is coming, it's coming very soon. They're going to feel the effects of it in uh, a little more than a year. There's not going to be a harvest, the land's going to be barren. Uh, because of that, you should mourn and grieve now. Uh, because the soil of my people, verse 13, is growing up in thorns and briars. The joyous houses in the exultant city, they're not there anymore. The palace is forsaken. The populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, of pastures, of flocks. So he's telling them, you should be freaking out right now. Because in a little more than a year, this judgment is going to fall. Everything you love is going to be taken away and deserted. And it's going to be that way. How long? Verse 14. Forever. That's bad news. But verse 15 starts with the word until. And that doesn't make sense to us. It's going to be forever until. It's going to seem like forever. They're going to be sitting in judgment for a very long time. But salvation comes after that. Verse 15 until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. You noticed he used a lot of the same language there that he used at the beginning of the chapter. He's saying that after the Spirit is poured out on us, this good kingdom, this good government, it's going to fall. It's going to come. We're going to experience it after the judgment. And the result for the people is going to be peace and quietness and trust. It's almost kind of the exact opposite of who they were before. It's the exact opposite of what their nation was like before. They didn't, they didn't trust in the Lord at all. They always had their schemes and their plans. They were making all this noise, trying to do stuff to save themselves instead of just trusting in God like Isaiah had been telling them to do again and again and again. And he tells them that after the Spirit falls, they're finally going to do that. And the important thing that we, we should not miss here um, is how significant what he says about the Spirit is in verse 15. He says, Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. The reason why we need to kind of sit in that and think about that is because for us, because we've read the New Testament, uh, the, the Spirit isn't that surprising. Right? The Spirit falling on us isn't that surprising. Um, and that's because the Spirit works differently in the New Testament than it works in the Old Testament. If you read, read through the Old Testament, kind of specifically thinking about the Spirit and specifically looking for the Spirit, uh, you're going to find it more challenging in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. It's not because the Spirit is, is less important in the Old Testament. It's not because he's more important in the New Testament, just because he functions differently. In the Old Testament, what, what we see is that the Spirit kind of falls on people temporarily. So like, uh, in, in some stories we'll talk in, like in the judges about the spirit rushing upon somebody like Samson and they do some crazy miraculous thing. And then like a little bit later, the spirit will rush on them and they'll do something else. 
or uh, like when Saul is king. He's anointed as king over Israel, and so the spirit rests on Saul. And then Saul screws it up, and God's spirit leaves Saul and goes to David. And then when David screws up, we see him writing in the Psalms, God, don't take your spirit from me, because he's seen it happen before. The spirit kind of falls on people, empowers them to do specific things, and then falls on other people and empowers them to do specific things. And like within that, you know, I don't know if it's just because these are the stories we have or because this is a specific way it worked, but it's mostly just the leaders. It's the judges, it's the kings, it's the prophets, it's the priests. They're the ones who we see being empowered with the spirit. It's not the common Israelite who's just trying to follow God. But when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the New Covenant, God says he's going to put his spirit in us, in, in everyone. Like here in Isaiah, he says it's going to fall on all. Like we get the spirit. Not just people who are in leadership. Not just people who are prophets or judges or priests or, or in a kind of like, like missionaries. Missionaries get the Holy Spirit. We pastors get the Holy Spirit. Deacons get some spirit. Normal Christians. Sorry, guys. That's not the way it works, right? We all get the gift of God's Spirit. And so this, for them, would have been shocking. Like, this is a a huge promise. The Spirit's going to fall on all of us. When we get to the promises of the new covenant, he's going to put it within us. He's going to cause us to walk in his statutes and keep his rules. He's finally going to fix not just what's broken about our country, but he's going to fix what's broken about us. He's going to enable us to keep his law so that we don't keep violating it and him having to pour out judgment on us. This is great news for them. And it's because the Spirit is poured out that justice is going to dwell in the wilderness and righteousness is going to abide in the fruitful field because it's going to be in his people. And they're going to be in the midst of the land. At the end of the chapter, he gives us kind of two weird verses with weird illustrations about what's happened in this chapter. He actually does it in both these chapters. So verse 19, he says, and it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Um, When he says it, it will hail when the forest falls down, I think that's kind of his version of when it rains, it pours. Like when the judgment falls, you're going to be judged. The city's going to be laid low. The forest is going to fall down. And then you're going to get pelted with a bunch of hail. Judgment is bad. It's going to be bad. It's going to be like the worst judgment you've ever experienced. Then verse 20, it's a different tone. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. When God brings his kingdom, everything and everyone is going to flourish. Once he fully inaugurates it. Before we move to 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 33, I want to, I want to talk some about, about these prophecies, these promises that Isaiah is making. Um, because right, he's saying judgment's going to come, and for them, judgment's coming very soon, you know, a little, little more than a year. It's at, at the doorstep. And he's also talking about this, you know, these great, huge promises about God's kingdom. And when we think about prophecy, we need to recognize there's a, I think there's a picture in here, this masterpiece of artwork right here. So this little stick guy, that's Isaiah. And these two mountains are, are two, two, two peaks, peaks of prophecy. And so like Isaiah, as he's receiving these messages from God and, and you know, giving them out to the people, like this is how he's experiencing what he's talking about. He's, he's looking to this future when judgment is going to come, and then after that, salvation is going to come. But what he doesn't realize is that there are two peaks, right? If you're, if you're standing here and you're looking at this, this mountain, you see one mountain. But behind it is a much bigger and a much better mountain to look at. But you, you can't see that because you can just see the small one in front of it. When prophecy gets kind of laid down in the Old Testament, this is the way it's fulfilled a lot of the time. So it'll talk about, you know, the Messiah is going to come. And he was born. Right? He lived a perfect life. He died a death in our place. He brought in a whole lot of the promises from the Old Testament about what the Messiah would do when he came and what the world would be like when he came. That's the first mountain. 
but we're still waiting for him to return and bring in all those other promises. That's the second mountain. So we live in the valley of that promise. For Isaiah, he's going to see God's judgment come. It's going to be Assyria. They're going to roll into town. They're going to do a whole lot of damage. Then after that, Babylon's going to come, and they're going to do a whole lot more damage. That's the first mountain. The second mountain is that God is going to judge all his enemies at the end of all things. And so as bad as the judgment that falls on Judah is, it's still small in comparison to what God is going to do at the end. The same goes for the salvation. God comes and he delivers them from Assyria. He kind of miraculously turns Assyria back at the gates of Jerusalem. And then he lets Babylon come and wipe them out. So they got some salvation, but they didn't get all of it. They're they're waiting for the first fulfillment of the Messiah coming who saves us from our sins. Even as we're waiting for him to come back and and bring his kingdom in its fullness. And so in 32, Isaiah is kind of looking at these promises, but he doesn't exactly know when it's going to uh, be fulfilled. He doesn't know which promises are going to be fulfilled in his lifetime and which ones are going to be fulfilled long after him. Just like we don't know. Right? Because we can't see the future. We don't know the future. Uh, and it's probably a gracious thing to us that we don't. And so this is how prophecy works a lot in the Old Testament and in, in these promises here. And so I think he's going to see, you know, maybe a taste of the Spirit being poured out on the people as they come back into the land. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. God begins to work in some of the people again. Um, but he doesn't experience what happens at Pentecost. Right? He doesn't see the Spirit fall on a whole bunch of people after Jesus rises from the dead. He doesn't get to see the church where people are indwelt with the Spirit and use our gifts to encourage one another and build one another up and share the gospel. Isaiah didn't get to, get to see that unless you know, he's experiencing it from, from heaven. But he didn't experience this promise fulfilled in his lifetime. He was looking off to the future, not knowing when it would happen. So, Isaiah 33. He's already talked about this ideal government. He's talked about what it's going to take to get there. And then he's going to talk in chapter 33 about what's coming next, kind of in the meantime. So I want to read this to you. He says, Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locust leaps, it is left upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done. And you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of the rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, 
the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But the Lord will be there in majesty for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So this is what's happening. And in order to understand this, I want to, I want to tell you what's kind of going on behind the scenes here. What, what the events are that have led to Isaiah speaking this. And, and there's, there's a couple of clues here that kind of tell us what's going on if you've read Israel's story at this point. The first one is in verse 1. He talks about um, this, this destroyer who is also a traitor who hasn't been betrayed, but is going to be betrayed, who hasn't been destroyed, but is going to be destroyed. And then in verse 7, he talks about these envoys of peace who, who are weeping bitterly. Okay, now I want to read to you a passage from 2 Kings. It kind of fills in the blanks for us. It says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, it's the guy who's currently king, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah, against Isaiah's wishes and advice, goes and trusts in Egypt because he didn't want to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. So he goes, trusts in Egypt. They team up. They say, let's rebel. Let's overthrow Assyria. They can't force us to pay tribute. Assyria says, want to bet. They come to town, they roll through the fortified cities of Judah and take them. Like, everything except Jerusalem now belongs to Assyria. It's theirs. Egypt didn't help. So Hezekiah freaks out. You would think that at this point, he would think, you know, Isaiah told me not to trust in Egypt, and I did, and it backfired. Maybe I should do what he's been telling me to do all along and trust in God. But he doesn't do that. He sends messengers to the king of Syria and says, hey, my bad. Shouldn't have refused you. Shouldn't have trusted in Egypt. How about I pay you off, and you just kind of leave? You can have those cities. So the king of Assyria says, all right. Give me 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. A talent is, is 75 pounds. At today's, actually not at today's, at Friday's prices, that's just shy of $50 million in silver and gold, 49.6. So Hezekiah empties out the treasury, starts stripping the temple for parts so that he can pay off the king of Assyria which he does. The king of Assyria doesn't leave. He takes the money. He breaks the deal, right? He betrays Hezekiah and marches on Jerusalem. And so 33 is panic. We've trusted in Egypt. It failed. We tried to buy him off. It failed. What are we going to do now? And finally, what they do now is trust in God. They ask God to help, and he does. Which is crazy to us. Because if we were in this situation over Hezekiah, there'd probably be one thing we would want to say. 
And that is, I told you so. And then maybe you made your bed, now you get to lie in it. But God pours out grace on this leader and on this nation and comes to their help. So verse 30, at the beginning of, of 33, he tells them that uh, this one who's betrayed, who hasn't been betrayed, he's going to be betrayed. What's going to happen? Don't want to give away too much of the ending, but uh, after he's turned back, he's going to go back to his country, and then Sennacherib is going to be killed by his sons. They're going to betray him and kill him and take his position. Um, he is destroying nation after nation after nation after nation. A Assyria is going to get wiped out eventually. He himself is going to be destroyed. God is going to come to the aid of his people. He's going to turn these armies back. He's going to take out a whole bunch of his people in the process. And then eventually, Babylon's going to overtake Assyria. Verse 2 is them crying out to God. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. They finally recognize that they have nothing else to turn to, and so they turn to the only one they really had to turn to all along. And God helps them. Uh, people flee. The nations are scattered. Uh, when God exalts himself and rises up, he's going to fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He's going to give them stability and safety and salvation. There's going to be an ab- abundance of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is going to be Zion's treasure. They're going to be the people that he called them to be all along. And he alone is going to be their treasure. Partially because Hezekiah gave everything else away. There is no other treasure. He says their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly because they tried to make peace and it didn't happen. He says, the highways lie waste, the traveler ceases, covenants are broken, cities are despised, there's no regard for man. He's talking about what Assyria has done to the rest of Judah. And then he's going to spend the rest of the chapter kind of unpacking this idea of what's coming. So he's told them Assyria is coming. They're going to come march on Jerusalem, but God is going to help you, even though you have rejected him again and again and again. Now that you've finally turned him, he's going to pour out grace on you, and he's going to unpack those ideas in the rest of the chapter. Um, so verse 10 talks about God rising up. He's going to arise, he's going to lift himself up, he's going to be ex- exalted. Verse 11, he's talking to Assyria. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you. The only reason why Assyria has been able to do what it did to the northern kingdom of Israel, and the only reason it's been able to do what it did to the rest of Judah, is because God was using them to pour out judgment on his people. Now that he's not doing that anymore, anything they try to do, anything they try to plan, any victory that they try to secure is going to fall flat. They're going to fail miserably because God isn't behind them anymore. And then he tells them in verses 13 through 14 that the judgment isn't going to just fall outside the walls. Right? He's going to pour out judgment on Assyria for trying to attack his people at Jerusalem, but there's also going to be some judgment that falls inside the walls. He says, Hear who, you who are far off, as in far off from God, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. He's calling the people here in, the, in this part of the chapter not just to offer lip service to God so that he'll, they'll help them, but to actually turn to God, to actually repent from their sins. That repentance has to come alongside faith that they're putting in him. So he says that the sinners in Zion are afraid because they know that God has risen up. God is going to pour out judgment on them if they don't Repent, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And then in verses 15 and 16, he's going to talk about what, what that kind of life of repentance, of righteousness looks like. But, but before we get there, just the reality of what's happening in this book of, of you know, these leaders who keep rejecting God and who continually turn to things other than him, and then him continuing to be gracious and faithful and patient with them. Even at this point, right, as as judgment is falling, he is calling these people who are in the city, who haven't yet truly trusted in him, to do it. God's grace 
And its consistency and its repetition through this book should be exceptionally encouraging to us. Right? Because it's really easy to look at them and say, they're fools for going to Egypt. They're fools for trying to pay this army off that's already on their doorstep with $50 million. I would never do that. And yet we continually turn to many, many small and insignificant things other than God. We continually put our trust in in ourselves, in our own efforts or willpower or bootstraps. We put trust in our own finances or our friends or our families or our ability to, to do things or to get things. What we need to do is we need to trust in God and recognize that our only hope even if we feel like we've got it all together, even if we feel like our lives are relatively safe and secure, we are in the same exact situation that they're in, that if we don't trust in God, we're going to fail miserably. We're going to be found out by him in the process. And the good news is that even throughout that whole time, like Isaiah said earlier, God is waiting to be gracious even to these people who are in this city around which most of whom have turned to God, God is still waiting to show them grace. He's still calling them to repentance. Verses 15 and 16, he describes the the life of repentance. It's those who, who speak uprightly and walk righteously, who despise the gain of oppression, who shake their hands lest they hold a bribe. They, they stop their ears from hearing a bloodshed. They shut their eyes from looking on evil. What he's saying here is that it's not enough just to trust in God and then not change your life. Because faith and repentance and obedience, they always go side by side. They always go together. So we have to trust in God, and through our faith in God, he brings about the obedience that's pleasing to him. So that's what he's expecting of these people in the city of Jerusalem. He's expecting them to trust in God and also not live the way they were living before. Begins to talk about the king in verse 17. And here he's going to give us more information. Kind of in 32, 32 he's kind of speaking generally about this, this good government that was coming. But here he says that they're going to behold the king in his beauty. And this king is going to be amidst, in the midst of a land that stretches far. Um, that you're not going to see the insolent people anymore. The people of an obscure speech you cannot comprehend. This is the Assyrians. They're going to, they're going to be dealt with. They're going to be gone when this king comes. Zion is going to be a city of appointed feasts. They'll see Jerusalem. It's going to be untroubled. There's not going to be a nation about to attack it any longer. It's going to be an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up. It's going to be in this situation permanently. The Lord will be there in majesty. He'll be the judge, the lawgiver, the king who will save them. This is a a progression in Isaiah. Back in Isaiah 11, he talked about the Messiah. He talked about how the Messiah was going to be a king, and he talked about it in terms that you would think, this isn't describing a human being. But it wasn't wasn't explicit there. It wasn't spelled out, hey, the Messiah is also going to be God. Just kind of hinted at in earlier parts of Isaiah. But when you get to this point, he's telling them, hey, this king that's coming, this messianic king that's coming to reign over you, it's going to usher in this time of prosperity, it's the Lord. And so right here, kind of their their messianic hope and their expectation for this anointed one who's going to come and is going to save them takes a giant leap forward as they recognize that it's going to be God himself who's going to rule over them. And really, this shouldn't have been surprising to them because that's been the story throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Right? He creates his people. He puts them in a garden. He's ruling over them. He gives them a law to obey. Don't eat from that tree. Uh, They're in his presence. They're called to go out and rule over his creation under him. He is their king, and his creation is his kingdom. And then they rebel, and so he kicks them out. And the rest of the Old Testament is about how they're going to get back to being under his rule and him as king. And even when they set up kings in their own land, God tells one of his prophets, he says, Hey, Samuel, don't, 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 don't be sad about what's happening. They're not rejecting you as king. They're rejecting me as king. 
So all the other kings that they had over them were just types and shadows. They were hints and whispers of the king that they should have had over them all along, that they should have recognized all along. And here in Isaiah 32 and 33, he's telling them that's finally going to happen. God is finally going to be recognized as your king. And when he is, the land's going to be as it's supposed to be. Everything's going to be set right. All the sad things are going to come untrue because he will be king and will know it. These last two verses, he gives us two more kind of weird statements about what's going to happen. Verse 23, he says, Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. So you're a broken ship, and so am I. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. What he's telling them and what he's telling us is that we're broken. We're, 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 we're helpless. We're like a ship in the middle of a battle that's, that's got a broken mass, that sails can't hold wind, and we're just driven to and fro by the waves without any control whatsoever over our lives. That's who we are. Because we're not in control. God is in control. And we don't have any control about whether the battle is a victory or a defeat. God does. So we're these broken ships in the midst of this battle. And at the end of the battle, even the lame, that's us, get the prey. We get the spoil. Everything we get is the result of grace. Everything these people get through this process is the result of grace. Because even the bad things, his word tells us he's going to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that means that it either is good and gracious to us now, or it will be at some point. And it might not be until the very end that we understand. But we're going to see that it was good somehow. So that's 23. You're lame, but you get the spoil anyway. 24 is him saying, uh, no inhabitants will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. That's great news. Because he's not just talking about physical disease. He's not talking about headaches and you know, backaches and whatever. He's talking about our real sickness, our problem with sin, our brokenness, our corruption from death and sin in this world. It's going to be gone. It's going to be done away with because we'll be forgiven of our iniquity. Sin isn't going to be there anymore. And that's not the best thing about his kingdom. That's a great thing about his kingdom. But the best thing about his his kingdom is that he is going to be king and we're going to know it in a way that we don't now. So this passage is him telling these people the hope that they have to look forward to. In the midst of a large army surrounding where they are, he's saying judgment's going to fall. It's going to fall on them. It's going to fall on you if you don't trust in him and repent. But after that, salvation's going to come. And for them... You know, they were looking forward to that distant peak. And for us, we get to experience some of Christ's kingdom now because when he came, he brought it. He started preaching. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like it's, it's here. It's in our midst. He started out casting demons and healing lepers and giving sight to the blind and saying, this is God's kingdom coming. And we get to go out and share the good news of him as king, right? In the gospels, it calls it the gospel of the kingdom. The fact that we have this ruler over us who is good and who is perfect and who is way better than anyone in our world who tries to set themselves up as king. But before that comes judgment. Before that comes salvation. Just like it was for them. And so as we we take the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to think about two things. That both before his kingdom came in the Gospels, and before it comes in its fullness now, we're waiting for two things. We're waiting for judgment, and the brunt of the judgment has already fallen. 
right? When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the fact that, that Christ's body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us and for our sin. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell on him. That's what we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper. And that's something we should celebrate, right? Because we don't pay what we should have paid. And the Lord's Supper also reminds us that even as we have salvation now, we have been justified. We will be sanctified. Even though we know that we've been adopted into his family, even though we know that we've been indwelt with his spirit, even though salvation has come, we also know that we're waiting for the full and final deposit of it because we're still broken. We still haven't been made fully right on the inside, and we need him to come and banish sin from us so that we can live the lives that he's called us to live in the place that he's taken us to live them. His kingdom is going to come in its fullness, and there we will be his people in a way that we're not now, because we won't be broken anymore. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're, we're trusting in, we're celebrating, we're, we're being astonished by the grace that has already been poured out on us, and we're hoping, we're longing, we're anxiously and expectantly waiting for the final deposit of what he said he's going to do. We want that second mountain to come. We want it to come soon. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are abounding in steadfast love. That you patiently wait to pour out grace on rebellious people. And that we get to see in your word examples of you lovingly laboring with your people in the face of their rejection, calling them back to yourself and doing for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And we thank you that because you've sent your son and because you've opened our eyes and, and, and caused us to trust in him, we get to see you doing that for us too. I pray today that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as, as a body, that you would overwhelmingly increase our appreciation for what you've done for us on the cross. That it wouldn't be routine or mundane or something that we've heard before, or thought about before, but that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. You would give us back the wonder at what Christ has done for us, and that you would, you would use that to stir a, a deep longing in us for you to bring your kingdom in its fullness, for you to bring our salvation in its fullness. I pray that you would use those things to motivate us now towards faith and repentance in you. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done and that all the promises in your word find their yes in you.